If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes um, 4, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 7. Callie, whenever you're ready. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, through Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw the living, all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was standing, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They, for they do not know that they are doing evil, but they, but be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter the word of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for dreams come with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Thank you, Callie. All right. Thank you very much. Let's pray together. Father, um, God, as we approach you in your word, um, God, we lift up our team as they are, um, God, sitting under your word in Peru. Um, Father, what a privilege um, to get an update from them, to see um, the gospel going forth to all the nations, um, God, and just that you choose us um, to be a small part of that. And uh, Father, I pray that this morning your gospel would continue to go forth. God, is it is going to go forth all throughout this country and um, God, eventually, um, as you promise, that it will touch every tribe, tongue, and nation, that every people group um, will hear the gospel and respond. Um, so, Father, we pray to that end this morning that your name would be magnified, um, that you would provide salvation for those, um, God, whom you call, um, who don't know you. God, I pray that many would receive the free gift of eternal life this morning, that you would sanctify your church, um, you would make us more like your son. And, Father, we pray for those um, in Israel. Um, God, I pray for swift judgment. Um, Father, from Israel, um, we have the prophets, we have the covenants, we have the promises, we have all of the blessings of salvation through the seed of Israel. And uh, God, Paul tells us in Romans 15 that we, we keep a high regard for Israel, God, because from them um, came the ultimate Messiah. So God, I pray 
um, that your judgment would be swift. Um, God, that you would um, cause hearts to turn or God, that you would bring judgment um, to stop this conflict. And God, ultimately, I pray that you would use this and all the events in our lives, God, um, so that Israel might see that Jesus is the true Messiah. God, that the world might see that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, God, be with us. Um, help us to know that even in the midst of dark circumstances, God, that we have a hope in life and death. And it's Christ alone. To his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, we're going to pick up um, essentially continuing where we left off last week. And if you remember, Solomon's been walking through this book that he's written, um, just looking out at the kingdom. He's the king of Israel. He's looking out over the kingdom. And he is essentially evaluating life under the sun looking for lasting joy and lasting meaning and lasting life and hope under the sun. And if you want the, the shortcut to the end, you're not going to find it. If you are looking to try to find your worth, your significance, your value, and ultimately lasting joy on this earth, in the things of this earth, you're not going to find it. And he talks about how you won't find it in your legacy, you won't find it in pleasure, you won't find it in wisdom, you won't find it um, in the justice of this world, you won't find it in your work, you won't find it in um, even just, just human friendships and human relationships. Every single one of those things will ultimately let you down at some point. They will not provide lasting joy. And Solomon has been putting our gaze towards those things, showing us that they won't satisfy, telling us to take our gaze to the Lord, fear the Lord, but then enjoy those things. Enjoy living a, a, a life of, of faith and passing on a, a, a legacy of faith. Enjoy the pleasures of this life. Enjoy wisdom. Live wisely. Enjoy your work, but then also enjoy your rest. He's told us, don't put your hope in those things, but enjoy them as good gifts from the Lord. And as we ended last week, Solomon essentially told us, um, if you want the recap, and, and if you're here this week and you happen to miss last week and you struggle with work-life balance, if you tend to struggle with finding your significance or your identity in your work, um, if you struggle to leave your work at a decent time and to be absent from your work, if you start working at home after you leave your work and you get home, last week is a great sermon for you to listen to. Um, but Solomon says that essentially for us as believers that we don't just abandon work. And we were made to work. We were not made for work. We're made for Christ, but we're made to work. So he says, keep a hand on your work, but don't have both hands on your work. Don't overwork. Don't spend your life dedicated to work. He says, take a hand off of work and put a hand on rest. He says, the believer's approach to work is we honor the Lord with our work. We're made to work. We glorify him with our work. He's saved us for great works to do, Ephesians 2.10. So we work, but we keep one hand on our work and we keep one hand on rest. And we rest because it's an act of faith. It's, it's humbly submitting to the way that God's designed the world. And when we rest, we get to enjoy relationships. Um, what is work, what is the benefit of work if you have no one to go home to enjoy it with because you work so much? If you have no people to enjoy your work with, if you don't even get to enjoy the fruit of your work because you keep going back to your work to try to find your significance. And Solomon says, hey, when you can take a hand off your work, then he says you get to enjoy the relationships around you. It is so much more enjoyable to go to work knowing that I have people that I'm working for, people that I want to enjoy the fruits of my work with. And Solomon starts talking about, he ends this section of uh, midway through chapter four of objectively life is better in relationships. That life is just better as you step away from your work. So Solomon says, work hard, but then go home and enjoy some good family time. Watch a good movie, read a good book, drink a good cup of coffee. Make a good fire in the backyard now that the weather's cool. 
and enjoy your rest. Work hard, but then rest well. He says, this is the life of the believer. Now, what Solomon's going to do is he's going to, to kind of give us um, a continuation of that thought because as soon as we start to do life um, in relationships, some of us can start to put our hope in those relationships. We can start to find our identity from those relationships, and Solomon's going to give us a warning not to do those things. And notice what he says in verse 13. He says this. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So Solomon is saying, hey, there's these two people. One is poor and young, but he's wise. The other one is an old king, but he's foolish. And he says, one is better off than the other. And the, the, the focus here is clearly on wisdom. It's not on circumstances because all of the people in Israel would have been nodding their head when he started saying poor and young, but they were expecting him to say fool. Right? Most people would go, okay, a young and poor fool. That makes sense. But what does he say? He says there's a young man and he's poor, but he's wise. And all of his listeners would have been like, what is going on? And then he says, and an old king, and everyone thinks, hey, if you're old, if you're a king, you've got to be wise. But then what does he call the king? He says he's a fool. Everyone would have stopped and go, okay, what do you mean? And Solomon is saying, hey, it is better to be the young, poor person with wisdom than it is to be the old king who's a fool. And notice the mark of the fool. What does he say? Who no longer listens to advice. You want to know one of the, the biblical marks of a fool? Someone who doesn't listen to the advice of others. And this is all throughout Proverbs. Remember Solomon wrote the Proverbs, but this is Proverbs 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 11, where there is no guidance, no advice, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 19, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 18, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And Solomon's saying, it's, hey, it's better to be the young, poor adolescent who has wisdom, who's willing to listen to others, than to be old and in charge and to think you know it all. It is a lonely place to be at the top and to think you've got it all figured out and you don't need anyone's advice. He says it's better to be young and wise. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're the CEO of your company, it doesn't matter if you're the mayor of this town, if you're the president of the United States, if you don't know how to listen to others, you're a fool. He says it's better to be wise and poor than it is to be the king and a fool. And notice he says this, for he went to, from prison to the throne. He's talking about the poor, young, wise man. Went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom, he had been poor. Why is wisdom better? Because you can advance with wisdom. You can listen to counselors. You can advance in your life and you can bring people along with you. When you're wise, people follow you. People gravitate towards you. People listen to you and you're able to move. If you're just an old foolish king, then you're there alone. No, no other place to go. No other place to advance. You are just by yourself. No respect from the people who submit to you, who follow you who are under your kingdom, he says it's better to not be king and be wise and have people who revere you and respect you and listen to you and you listen to them than to be in charge of the whole nation and unwilling to listen to the advice of others. 
Uh, Chase reminded me of a, there's a scene in Band of Brothers uh, where this Captain um, Sobel is walking by his major. It's the guy Ross from Friends. He's Captain Sobel and he's walking by his major and um, the major's not a good guy and he's in the Jeep and uh, Captain Sobel's walking with this other dude and uh, the other soldier, you know, salutes the major and Ross, Captain Sobel, essentially kind of looks away on purpose, doesn't look at the guy and Major Winters confronts the man and he says, Captain, and he makes him stop And he says, we salute the rank, not the man. And he's essentially saying, hey, you don't have to respect me, but respect my position. And Solomon says, hey, it's so much better to have people respect you for who you are because you're willing to listen to them than for them to disrespect you because you're in a position of authority. It is so much better to be wise, even if you don't have the rank, even if you don't have the authority, than it is to have all the authority you could ever want and have nobody around you that respects you because you don't listen to them. And we know this to be true. I want my son to revere and respect me, not just obey me because I'm dad. And how do I get that from him? It requires me getting on a knee and listening to him and spending time with him and playing with him on the floor and throwing ball with him in the driveway. So many of us, when we discipline our kids, we want our kids to respect us, but we don't put in the time to listen to them and hang out with them and invest in that relationship. I want my wife to enjoy following me as her husband, not just because it's right, but because I listen to her and I spend time with her and I invest in her. I want our staff here at this church to love following me as we shepherd you. But they won't do that if I don't take time to listen to them and spend time with them and invest in them and talk to them. And Solomon says it's so much better to have people's respect, not just for your position, but for you. And that requires for you to listen to them. But then Solomon makes a quick observation before we can be tempted. Even the wise man who has these people around him who like me, who listen to me, here's one of the temptations. Here's another ditch we can fall into. He says this, verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. So Solomon's looking out. Here comes, you know, the poor, young, wise man who's about to be king. Here comes all the people that are gonna follow him as king. And he says this, verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, just numerous people. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after a win. He says, this young guy, as wise as he is, as likable as he is, doesn't realize it. But there's a generation coming after the people that he's going to lead, and they won't praise him. They won't revere him. Don't put your hope in human popularity. Yes, live and invest in your relationships. Yes, be wise and have people around you. Do life with others. He's just told us midway through chapter four that it's objectively better. Two is better than one. And three is so much better than two. Do life with others, but don't put your hope in the popularity of others. He says this king's going to have millions of people praise him. And the next generations coming behind them won't revere him at all. They will move on to the next. The word popularity comes from populace, which which just means people. And and popularity is so deceptive because all you have, the the, the mantra of popularity is what have you done for me lately? Isn't it? What have you done for me lately? President George H. Bush had like the highest approval rating as a president ever after Desert Storm. Only to be you know, seated by Bill Clinton just a few years later. Because why? The people cry out, what have you done for me lately? 
Think about all of the one-hit wonders that you've ever experienced in the music industry, in the movies, right? Take, uh, take On Me by AHA. Anybody in here know another AHA song? <laughs> Who let the dogs out? Who sang that? <laughs> Who was it? Was it Baha Men? Yeah. Can somebody sing a second Baha Men song? Anybody know two Vanilla Ice songs? <laughs> See what happens? People cry out. Uh, and I, I remember watching this a couple years ago. I was asked to preach and I was using the illustration for something else. But when Stranger Things came out, the producers were so infuriated with Netflix. They were so mad. Why? Because they had spent years of money and time and investment and energy, and Netflix just put the whole series on their platform, and everyone consumed it in a weekend. Some people had consumed it all in one day, and two weeks later, all of the rage of Stranger Things was gone, and people were demanding another season instead of just enjoying the one that had just come out. Why? Because the people cry out, the, 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 the shadow side of popularity is, what have you done for me lately? The people consumed it and moved on to the next person. Somebody better tell that to John Moran, right? The Grizzlies will ditch him if he's just going to get in trouble and stay on the sidelines of the NBA. Because the mantra of the people is, what have you done for me lately? Stay out of trouble. Fly high and slam the ball hard because we love to see it but quit fooling around right because that's the mantra of the people and kids students you need to know this popularity is deceitful so many of us that was my goal at school was to be as popular as I can but nobody tells you that to be popular you have to keep doing things to be in people's view you have to keep doing things to, to stay in the conversation which allows you to be tempted to compromise your values, who you are, what you believe in, what your parents have taught you, because you have to keep doing things to be in the conversation. Because to be popular means you have to keep doing things to stay in the populace, in the conversation. You have to keep doing things lately so that other people will keep talking about you. And if you live for the praises of other people, you will die by their criticism. If you live for the praises of men, you will feel significant and feel on top of the world when people are noticing you and talking about you and your outfit and your performance at the game and all those kind of things. And you will die when they move on from you, when they say you didn't do well, you didn't look good, you're not cool anymore. And I would encourage you, heed the words of Solomon. Don't try to be popular. Just be you. Be who God created you to be. And find the two or three or four or five that like you for who God made you to be. And enjoy it. That's a great life. Find people who want to be around you for who God made you to be. There's a warning for all of us. Now Solomon's going to move into something. It's kind of a two-part message this morning as we move into chapter 5. He's been talking about a lot of things that he's, he's um, identified as vanity, as meaningless. And now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about worship. And the vanities of worship. Now, he's not saying that worship is vanity, but he's saying that how these people are worshiping is meaningless, the way that they're going about it. So Solomon's going to talk about how we should worship God over these next few minutes. And he's not going to talk about what we should wear and what time you should show up and all of those kind of things. He's not looking at the externals. What he's going to do is he's going to look at the internals. 
of how we should worship God rightly in our heart. So let's look at what he says. He says this in verse one of chapter five. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So when Solomon says the house of God, he's referring to the temple there. Um, Before the temple, he would have been referring to the tabernacle. The temple and the tabernacle were these places where God instructed his people to build. The tabernacle was just a mobile temple. It was a tent essentially on wheels, where when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, he instructed them, before you go anywhere, build a tabernacle, because I'm going to be with you. My presence is going to dwell with you as you go to the promised land that I've given you. I literally want to physically dwell with my people. That was the tabernacle. They finally get to the land and they build a temple, right? God instructs Solomon to build the temple. Took Solomon and his men seven years to construct the temple. But what was the temple? It was a place where God could physically dwell with his people, where the people would come to worship God and God would dwell with his people. And there were procedures with the tabernacle, there were multiple procedures with the tabernacle, the tabernacle and the temple, though, to slow down people's worship. And it was intentional that you weren't supposed to just run into the tabernacle. That would get you killed. You can't just run into the inner rooms of the temple where God's presence would dwell, that there were washings that had to take place, there were procedures that had to take place, and all of it was meant to slow our role when it comes to our worship. The famous of barriers and procedures was the veil and the temple that separated all of the rest from the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of the Lord actually dwelt. That there was a barrier that you couldn't just rush in there unclean. You couldn't just rush in there in your sin. That God cannot dwell with sin. If, if sin shows up to God, you die. So there were these barriers, there were there, these procedures. Now, this side of Christ, we don't have these barriers as far, there is no veil. The veil's been torn. The moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, the veil was torn. That we don't have any um, hoops to jump through to run to God, to be in God's presence. There are no hoops for the believer to jump through, to commune with the God, to talk to God, to pray to God. But Solomon says the principle remains the same, that we don't just rush to God flippantly, that we don't just rush to check a box. In fact, um, if you look at the the southern steps of Israel, I actually have a picture of it. Um, It'll be on the screen. Um, These are the southern steps of the temple. Uh, The Mount of Olives is in the background. I've gotten to sit on these steps, which is really unique. And uh, if you notice the width of the steps, you notice there's a really wide step and there's a really short step. And then there's a really wide step and there's a really short step, which makes it really inconvenient to sprint, which was the goal. It was so that we wouldn't just rush to go and and practice our religion. Oh, I've got to hurry and go make a sacrifice. Let me just sprint up here real fast and check off this box. Let me just go to worship, you know, give God an hour, you know, give God his hour, and then we'll move on to brunch and mimosas, right? No, we were meant to stop. You can run, you can try, but you can't run as fast as you would normally. And these steps were intentionally constructed that way to slow us down. Solomon says, guard your steps as you approach God. We don't just rush in to perform our religious duty. We come reverently, knowing who that we worship, that we show up in reverence, that, hey, this is the God of the universe. This isn't my cosmic vending machine. This isn't my heavenly butler. 
that this is the one who spoke the universe into existence. So yes, there are no hoops to jump. But Solomon says, hey, when you come to the Lord, don't just rush like you're running to the grocery store to drop off a few things. That we show up reverently, remembering who we are worshiping. We don't show up flippantly. We don't show up and worship God in a hurry. We don't just knock out our reading so we can ease our conscience and so that God might be pleased with us this morning. No, we show up reverently. We approach him with awe and with reverence, remembering who we worship. And notice the distinguishing mark Solomon gives. It's the same distinguishing mark he just gave gave about the young man. He listens. He says he listens. Listening is better than making sacrifices. That we don't just show up and say, hey God, here's the behavior that you asked for. Here's my church attendance. Hey God, here's the couple dollars in a couple hours. I'm gonna give a couple dollars, I'm gonna serve a couple hours, I'm gonna check the church box off and go out about the rest of my day. Monday through Saturday, that we don't just show up and knock off a to-do list. But we show, we come to meet with God reverently and listening. God, I wanna remind myself of who you are. God, I wanna remind myself of what you've done for me. God, I show up reverently, acknowledging you for who you are, acknowledging me for who I am, that I bring nothing to the table other than sin and resistance. And God, you bring love and mercy and compassion and pursuit and a substitute yourself to take the wrath that I deserve. That changes how we approach God. We're not just checking a religious box. We're not just knocking something off the to-do list. We're not just giving God his hour and going about the things that we actually love, that we show up reverently. And then he says this, he gives us another warning in verse two, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And Solomon says, don't be quick and careless with your words. We approach God humbly. He's Lord of all, creator of the universe. He is not our heavenly butler where we just jump into prayer. We rush in, hey God, here's the list of my demands this week. Bless my business, keep my kids safe. All right, you got it? Okay, I'm gonna move on. Control the things that I can control. That he, we're not quick with our words, we're not rash with our words. Don't be hasty with our words. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Essentially, remember who you're talking to. Therefore, let your words be few. And here's the thing. Giving God your words is not the problem. It's your heart's attitude as we give God our list of demands for the week. Like we're giving someone our grocery list. He says, and here's the good thing about our God, he longs for you to bring your words to him. He's not a distant, absent, emotional being. He cares about you. Philippians 4, he says, give me your anxieties and I'll give you my peace. 1 Peter 5, he says, give me your cares because why I care for you. But this idea that we're just gonna say the magic words, to, for God to you know, spit out the gumball that we really want, that we treat our time with the Lord just like a formula. If I say the right things and give the right these and thous and you know, your will be done, but actually my will be done, if I just go through the formula, that God will give me what I want. He says, don't rush into that. Don't do that. God cares and longs for you to bring him your words, but we don't treat it like we're just dropping off a to-do list with someone that works for us that we approach God humbly, 
knowing that he is our savior and our Lord and he loves us. And more than anything he wants to do for us, he wants to be with you. He wants you to delight in him. You were made to know him, not for him to do things for you, which God in his grace has done. The greatest thing he's done is giving you his son as the lamb that was slain. But so many of us approach our relationship with God with, God, here's just the next few things I'd like for you to do for me. And not, God, I want you to be enough for me regardless of what you do. God, I want to spend time with you. God, I want to know you. God, I want to depend on you more. We, we start to think, God, if you just change my circumstances a little bit, then I'll depend on you more. And God's saying, no, 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 I'm here for you to trust in me, depend on me, regardless of your circumstances. All of those things can move and be shaken and crumble. I cannot. So dwell with me and be with me. And now Solomon's gonna talk about what we say. He says this in verse three. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. And what he's saying here is just like it takes a lot of work to accomplish a dream, so many of us think that our desires are gonna be accomplished when we just give God many words. If I just show up and just, just impress him with my prayers, just give him all my words, if I just talk a lot and pray a lot, then God will give me what I actually want. He says, that's not how it goes. And Jesus actually says this. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. So our posture as we approach the Lord and worship him is not to try to impress him. It's to be honest with him. It's to be brokenhearted before him. It's to be open with him. It's not, God, let me do the formula, let me push the right buttons, and let me do all that I can for you to give me the circumstance that I want. It's, God, here's my heart. God, help me to trust you. God, yes, I have desires. God, yes, I pray for relief in certain areas. God, yes, I'm, I'm, you, you call me to ask and give me those cares, so here they are. But I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to use you to get something else. I'm not just in it for your hand. God, I want to know you. God, I want to seek your face. Not just the next circumstance I want you to give me. He says, don't try to just heap up many words for God to give you the thing that you want. And here's a sign that we don't understand the gospel. And, and Solomon's going to give us this scenario. Verse four, he talks about vows. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So Solomon says, don't just rush to the temple, guard your steps. Don't just offer up a lot of words trying to impress God and get what you really want. But then he says, don't make a bunch of promises to God that you're not gonna keep. And vows in the Old Testament, there, there were actual vows. In Deuteronomy 6, you can read about the Nazarite vow that God put before his people that were optional, where if you wanted to participate in this, you could. And there were stipulations with the Nazarite vow. It involved, you know, not drinking alcohol, not cutting your hair, and it involved, you know, a certain period of time, and they couldn't be around anything dead. And it was essentially just the people saying, God, I am setting myself apart. I'm making a vow to set myself apart to you, to be holy unto you, to, to not be unclean, and to just give you more of my devotion. And it was optional. God did not require his people to do it. There were two people in the scriptures, Samuel, and many people think John the Baptist. Uh, both of them, their parents um, essentially signed them up for this vow before they were even born. They didn't have the option. Their parents just chose it for them. Um, and you can read about that in the text. But um, 
It was an optional vow. And Solomon is essentially saying, don't offer up these vows when you're not going to keep them. Many people would just show up and, and because there were other people in the temple, because there were other people around worshiping the Lord, they made all of these promises that they weren't going to keep. Why? To impress the people around them. God, I'm going to give you an hour every morning this week. God, I'm going to give you a 20th of all of my income. God, I'm going to do all of these things. Why? Just to impress others. And Solomon says, don't do that. Don't delay in paying your vow. Keep your word to the Lord. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Excuse me. He says, it's better that you should not vow, that you should vow and not pay. Now, here's the deal. We don't participate in vows anymore, but boy, we would be lying if we don't do these, you know, what I call barter prayers, right? Lord, if you just do this, then I'll do this, right? Lord, if you make my business successful, then I'll never drink again. And we start to do these things. We start to wager with our God. God, if you just heal my kids, right, then I will never be dishonest at work ever again. God, if you just keep my kids safe, then I'll read my Bible every day for the rest of my life. And we start to make these promises as if our relationship with God is a transaction. And here's the deal. Both of these show that we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand what we have in the gospel because we want something else. God, we just want God's next circumstance that he has to give us. Our prayer is not, God, I just want more of you. It's God, hey, if you just give me these things that I actually want, then I'll give you something that you want. And we see God as a means to get what we actually want and not as the end, the ultimate end with ultimate joy and ultimate rest and ultimate peace. We forget We don't see, we get deceived. And we don't realize that, no, God, you are where joy is found. You are where where rest is found. You are where peace in the midst of circumstances is found. And we forget that and we say, God, if you just give me the things that I really want, you're just kind of the means to give me what I actually want. I'll give you what you want. Which shows us we still don't understand the gospel. Because more than God could ever want your behavior, what does he want? He wants your heart. We start offering our behavior to God thinking he wants it. He's like, no, I don't want your behavior. I want your heart. I want your affections. Don't offer me your behavior just to get something else. Bring your broken heart to me. I'm rest for your soul. I'm joy for your soul. I can give you what you're looking for in that circumstance. Solomon's already told us it's never gonna give you what you want. But so many of us bypass God we say, hey, this is what I want. This will make me happy. This will satisfy me. And God, if you give me that, I'll give you what you want. Which shows we understand neither God nor the gospel. Because God doesn't want your dead religion. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. What did Jesus say? He says, these people honor me with their lips. But what? Their hearts are far from me. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. And then he says this in verse six. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So in in this vein of empty promises to the Lord, he says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Don't take those vows. Um, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy 23. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Hey, if you promise it to the Lord, he's gonna require it. 
and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. He says, God's going to hold you to your word. So don't make those empty promises. God's not after your behavior. He wants your heart. And when God gets our hearts, he'll get our affections. He'll get our behavior. But he's not after just blind, dead allegiance. He's not after dead religious works. And I pray that that breaks through the walls of some of you in here this morning. That if the motive for you coming here to worship with us is that you are going to impress God with your church attendance. Hear the gospel this morning. He's not after your behavior. He wants your heart. He wants your wayward heart. All of us, you're in good company. All of our wayward, broken, sinful hearts. He says, bring it to me. I have rest, I have healing in my son. Freely given by his bloodshed. Bring your heart to me. But he says, don't make these promises. God's gonna hold you to them. Proverbs 20 says, a fool um, rashly makes these vows. He says, if you snare to say rashly, it is holy and reflect only after making vows. He says, don't do it. Don't just quickly make these promises and then reflect about what you promised God later. Don't rush into these vows and make them. And then he says this in verse seven. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Solomon says that in our worship with the Lord, there's much vanity, a lot of meaninglessness when our eyes get big looking at better circumstances and our words start to grow many. That if you come to God just seeking better outcomes and better circumstances and you think more words are gonna give you that thing, he says that's meaningless. And Solomon says, I'm looking out at my people. And this is one of the few times that he mentions God in the book. But he says their worship of God is rushing in, giving God their list of demands, making promises they're not gonna keep, and leaving to try to impress the people around them and ease their conscience. And Solomon says, hey, that's meaningless. That's not the way to worship the Lord. What does he say? Come reverently, come humbly, come openly, come honestly, and give God your heart. Give him your cares. Give him your worries. Give him your anxieties. But bring him your heart. So we approach God reverently, yes, remembering who we worship. We approach God humbly, listening and obeying the commands of our Savior and Lord. We approach him selflessly, seeking his face and not just his hand. We approach God boldly, knowing that there are no hoops to jump, to be in his presence. But then lastly, we approach God intimately, knowing that the creator of the universe also calls us sons and daughters, that he's not just this distant being, that he is our heavenly father if you're united with Christ by faith. My son has been doing this thing, he's five months old, where he'll grab my beard and just you know, twist my head around and then he gets really close to my face and just puts both hands on my cheeks and just looks at me. And you know what? I absolutely love it. And here's the thing, none of you are allowed to do that to me, <laughs> right? Only he can do that to me. Why? Because I'm his father. And he's my son. And he can show up with spit up all over himself, which he conveniently just saves for me when I hold him. He can show up with poop coming out of his diaper. 
Other day it was coming out the front and the back. I don't know how you do that. And he can come to me with all of his mess and just stick his hands up. And guess what? We pick him up, why? Because we love him. Because I'm his father and he's my son. And your heavenly father says, come to me. Bring your mess to me. Bring your struggles to me. Bring your temptations to me. Bring your anxieties to me. Come reverently, come humbly, come selflessly, come boldly and come intimately because I'm your father and I long to give good gifts to my children. So show up. We don't come with our list of demands. We don't worship God just to impress others. We don't check a box so that God might give us better circumstances this week. We come and worship God because he's enough. He's our savior and he's our Lord and he's our father and he loves us. Many of you have seen the movies where, you know, there's a president and the president's kid is always kind of rummaging through the White House and there's always this scene and I love that they include it in most of the movies with the president's kid because he comes running down the hallways of the White House. He comes, you know, passing secretaries at their desk, busting in the Oval Office and there's always like some officials that stop him. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you can't address the president like this. You can't approach him like this. And what does the kid always say? He says, he may be your president, but he's my dad. And he comes boldly to his father. And he gives his father his worries and his cares and what he's going through. And this is the relationship that we have with our God. That the barriers have been removed, the veil has been torn. But we don't show up in our daily worship with the Lord and even on Sunday mornings. Like it's a religious transaction. We show up to give him our hearts. We show up to say, Lord, this is where we are. We're broken, we're fallen, we need you. We need more of your grace. We need more of your presence in our lives. We need more dependence on the gospel. God, we need more of you in our lives. And Solomon says, that's how you worship the Lord. That's not meaningless. It's not about performance. It's about honest, humble brokenness before our God. Sacrifices I do not require but a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. This is our God. He just wants you to come openly and honestly and humbly. And that's the good news of the gospel as we close this morning. We don't find our worth in the praises of men. We find our worth in the love of the Father. We don't find our worth, and here's a big one, do not find your worth in what you do for God and your lofty prayers and your church attendance and your dollars and cents. Find your worth ultimately in what God has done for you. Our worth doesn't come from anything under the sun. It doesn't come from man-made religion. It comes from the Son, S-O-N, who came down and bled and died for us. That's where our worth comes from. There is not, Solomon has been painstakingly taking us through every single part of this life and saying you're not going to find worth there. You're not even going to find it in your religion if you think that's going to give you worth. You find it in knowing Christ and his blood shed for you. That's where your worth comes from. Not in the work of my hands, but in the scars that are in his. Not in my effort, in my striving, but in his striving. Not in my sacrifice for him, but his sacrifice for me. That's where you'll find worth. And when you find it, you will strive and you will worship, and you will sacrifice, not to win his approval, but because you already have it. That's when worship gets good, is when I can lift my hands, knowing I'm not trying to win God's praise with my posture, 
but I lift my hands because I can't do anything but lift my hands. Because God knows my heart and he knows how wayward it is and he knows how selfish I am and he knows how sinful I am and he shed his blood for me anyway. That's a love that causes me to lift my hands. Someone undeserving with an unobligated God giving us an unimaginable gift of the sacrifice of his son. The good news of the gospel this morning as we make these empty promises to God is my salvation is not based on my faithfulness to my word. My salvation is based on God's faithfulness to his. And that's good news because I've offered the Lord so many empty promises. Lord, I'm never gonna do that again. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Your salvation is not based on your word to me. It's based on my faithfulness to my word to you. Amen? Let's worship him. He's where our worth is found. Father, as we close this morning, God, we're grateful for Solomon and his wisdom. God, in giving us some instruction on how we worship you. And God, I'm grateful that there's actually freedom in those instructions that we don't have to perform, that we don't have to say the right words, that we don't have to to put on for you. God, that you're not interested in those things. God, that honest worship is giving you our hearts and recognizing that our worth is not in anything that this world has to offer. But our worth and our value and our hope is found in you. So God, we come to you this morning. I pray that if anyone in here has never done that for the first time, that they would forsake the things of this world and they would come and find life and find hope and find their ultimate worth and who you've made them to be and what you've done for them on the cross. Pray that anyone this morning would receive that, rich, that invitation of eternal life by putting their faith in the finished work of Christ at the cross. And God, for the rest of us, we confess as we close that our worth is found in you. It's found in your sacrifice. And God, what a joyful place to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.